Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guests today are filmmaker Rod Lurie and composer Larry Gruppe. Rod Lurie is a director and screenwriter who was born in Israel but moved to the United States at a young age, growing up in Connecticut, then Hawaii. After graduating from West Point, he served in the U.S. Army as an air defense artillery officer and then made the natural transition to entertainment reporter and film critic. Lurie had an irreverent style that sometimes got him into trouble, but it eventually got him into making films of his own, including Deterrence, The Contender, Nothing But the Truth, and the remake of Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs. Rod Lurie has also worked in television, creating the series Line of Fire and Commander-in-Chief. And on all of the above projects and more, Rod Lurie collaborated with composer Larry Gruppe, who has written for film and television as well as the concert stage. Gruppe earned his Master of Music and Composition at the University of California at San Diego, then made quick strides into the world of film scoring. He's won the New York Film Award for Best Score and received three Emmy Awards. Larry Gruppe is also visiting professor of music scoring for visual media at the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. Rod Lurie and Larry Gruppe's latest project together is the upcoming film The Outpost, based on the book by Jake Tapper about one of the deadliest battles U.S. forces have faced during the war in Afghanistan. Recently, Rod Lurie and Larry Gruppe joined me for a conversation in the WFIU studios. Rod Lurie, Larry Gruppe, thank you so much for joining me on Profiles. Thanks for having us. In the two of you, we have a really interesting case study on our hands because obviously there are many director-composer relationships right. like Spielberg and Williams and Soderbergh and Cliff Martinez and the Coen brothers and Carter Burwell. Nolan Zimmer. Right. And, and the, the work relationship is going to differ for each one. Mm. But before we start talking about how the two of you collaborate and when you met, I maybe want to focus a little bit more on the origin story here. So, Rod, maybe starting with you, I'd like to go back to not quite the very beginning, but certainly before your life as a film director right. and a screenwriter. How did you get from a West Point graduate who served in the U.S. <laughs> Army as an air defense artillery officer right. to an entertainment reporter and well, film critic? Well, we all go somewhere, the, the West Point <laughs> graduates. Some of us become lawyers, some doctors, some politicians. And, you know, I, I went to West Point with the hope of becoming a filmmaker. Really? Yeah, I know it sounds odd, right? But it's actually quite true. I was talking to some of the film students at Indiana University uh, the other day, and I told them that if they're in film school learning to direct, they're pretty much wasting their time. You can't learn how to direct. You can learn the technicalities of directing, and you can learn what crossing the line is, and you can learn a little bit about cameras, and you can learn about this or that, but directing is a creative act, and you can't learn it. You either have it or you don't have it, and you can supplement it, but you can't learn it. So I always said, go to school to study what you want to make movies about. And I had always been interested from when I was just a kid in, in um, human principle, in character, and leadership. Those were the things that really energized me. Those are the kind of movies that I was really interested in. And West Point seemed like the place to go to learn a little bit about that, to become deeply immersed in that. The history that they teach at West Point was made by the men that they taught. That's what they like to say, and they're absolutely right. 
whenever I was walking on campus, I always asked myself, we don't call it campus, we call it post. Whenever I was walking on post, uh, I always asked myself, where would I put the camera? Where would I put the camera? How can I achieve my cinematic goals? I want to do a boxing film at West Point. Where would I put the camera? Where would I put my story? In what locations? And as I was studying what I studied at West Point, you know, film ideas came to mind the whole way through. I'd always been interested in film. And that seemed like the best place to go for me, believe it or not. I mean, I was interested in what might be the best education in the world. And I was interested in serving my country. I'm an immigrant and thought that I would do a little payback. But more importantly, it served my greater goals in life to have gone there. And so when I graduated and then after my service, I remember I was on a plane coming back from Germany where I had served with the 2-2 uh, Hawk missile unit in Eastern Germany. I took out a pad and pen and I wrote down, here's what I'm going to do to eventually become a filmmaker. And I said, I'm going to become a film critic and I'm going to be like Truffaut and I'm going to be like Odar and be like those guys. Little did I know it had never been done in the United States. A few film essayists had become filmmakers, but nobody who had reviewed films like on a weekly basis had become a film critic. I didn't know that, though. So I decided, okay, where am I going to become a film critic? Where can I go? And I said, I'm going to go to a little weekly paper in Greenwich, Connecticut, offer it for $25 a week to be their critic, and I'll just grow from there. And then I laid out the dominoes that would eventually get me to become a filmmaker, and that's what happened. The plan ended up working. Wow, please tell me you have that piece of paper framed somewhere. I absolutely do not because I didn't think I'd be a successful filmmaker <laughs> where anybody would care. But that's a true story. Now, as an aspiring critic, I know you also had a relationship with critics who were working at the time, right. writing letters to people like Roger Ebert. And right. I was wondering if there was a special resonance when in his review of your first film, Deterrence, mm -hmm. He said that you were a critic for Los Angeles Magazine, and yeah. by the looks of things, you should quit your day job. Yeah, that was great, and Ebert ended up being a real champion of my films. I remember when my second film, which was my first like substantial film, it's called The Contender, came out. We got the transcript of um, the... It was Ebert and Roper at the time, and it was just the most effusive praise. I couldn't believe what I was reading. And I thought, okay, now I'm really made because these two guys just endorsed us. They said it was the best political film since Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which, by the way, is complete nonsense. It's not even close, but that's what they said. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, we're absolutely off to the races. I will tell you that when I was a little boy, I loved movies, but I didn't know the movies were made. I didn't realize the movies were directed. I didn't realize that they were photographed. I didn't realize that you had costumes. I didn't realize any of that stuff. I didn't even know what actors were, really, when I was a little boy. It was a little weird that the guy from Planet of the Apes is also Moses, but that's just the world up there. So because I didn't realize movies were made, I didn't aspire to be a director at that time or to be an actor even. I, they, those guys were not my heroes. My heroes were the people who had this great job, which is to uh, review films. And so I was a follower of Paul and Kale and Ebert. I was a follower of uh, Judith Christ and Vincent Canby. And when I was like nine, 10 years old, I started writing to these critics. I was like an obsessed fan of film critics. And they wrote me back. 
Pauline Kale, God, I, I wish I had this letter. I didn't think about keeping them when I was that young. She gave me something she'd never done for anyone else. She gave me her 10 greatest films of all time. And Ebert did the same thing. And, and so all I aspired to be when I was a little kid was a film critic because that's what I thought was the pinnacle of life. And uh, I eventually did become a film critic, and I was so excited when I became a member of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, and I could vote in their awards. And, you know, th that was, to me was, oh, my God, I've really made it. Now, I knew along the way I wanted to become a filmmaker and that the criticism would become a stepping stone to that. When I was a little boy, that was the end goal. Now, Larry Gruppe, to get into your backstory, you loved movies. And I imagine that you also had a deep and abiding love of music. Do you remember the film where you kind of put it together, the thing that you saw that made you think not just of your love of movies and your love of music, but your love of the film score? It took a while for my path to go towards film score. The more important galvanizing moment was to be a composer. In high school, I had a wonderful music teacher. I would always improvise down in the practice rooms late at night, getting my high school angst out of my system. My teacher, you know, would hear these improvisations and he approached me one day and said, hey, Larry, those are really cool. Have you ever tried writing any of those improvs down? I go, well, no. He says, you should try that. And so I did, and I found it very challenging because now I got a piece of paper and a pencil in my hand, and do I really want this chord or do I want this alternate chord like I did last night? And so the process of that decision and then committing it to paper, I realized was what composition was, and I just fell in love with that process and the act of decision-making. The same teacher, maybe a month or so later, then played me for my first listening time ever. I was 16, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, and before the end of the first five minutes of that piece, I knew exactly what I wanted to be, meaning a composer, not necessarily specifically going down to film, but that was it. And I never deterred from that. That's unusual for a 16-year-old to know that this is what I'm going to do. And so everything that I spent my time and energy on was towards that goal. And as I pursued my education in composition and got more familiar with repertoire and other major works, I loved all these modern pieces of that era. So Bartok, um, the early Copeland stuff, those are the things I really, really liked. It was also in combination with hearing the band Yes for me. I just liked prog rock because of how epic it was and just how big. And these pieces are 25 minutes long and they go through all these different changes. And in a way, they're like little film scores. And so that also kind of fed into my desire to play and understand music more. I'll jump forward for only a half a second to say that they were my favorite band of all time, and I actually joined that You got band. to work with yeah, them, yeah. Yeah, I co-wrote their last record together, which was an amazing moment of the future that came my way. Anyway, that's how it started for me as far as music. And then I went all the way through graduate school. I came out to UCSD to get my uh, master's degree as a composer. And when that degree was ending, that's when everybody's preparing to move forward with their PhD to become a college professor. And I... I'd never left school. I was getting kind of just tired of being in school. I really liked movies. I go, gosh, LA's only an hour away and I would like to try this. So that's how I kind of veered in that direction. I started working in recording studios, writing string arrangements for singer songwriters, doing a jingle, doing all kinds of things that got me. Actually, I cut my teeth understanding how studio recording works by doing all kinds of different things. And ultimately, when I ever had leftover time in a session, I would always have a little piece of music that I had just written that I liked 
that felt like cinema to me. And so I was able to build up a small reel, at least of music, without a project. This little reel got the attention of an agent in L.A. who just liked the music. He knew Rod's producing partner, Mark Friedman. I had a meeting with Rod, who had recently come to L.A. and written a script. I got a hold of that script, and then I went ahead and wrote three themes based upon just my reactions to the characters in the script and took it up to Rod to play. Very nerve-wracking playback for me. He was very still, stone-faced, so I couldn't really read it, but he liked the material very much. The uh, movie was never made, but several months later, he did a short that he asked me to do, and then it's it's been a fantastic history from there. Yeah. Porkchop was a movie about the last 24 hours in the life of a pimp, and it's a movie that couldn't get made now under any circumstances whatsoever. It's about the most racist, misogynistic character maybe ever put to pen. And we almost got it made with Eric Roberts was going to play the lead character. And he dropped out of the movie at the last second to do In Cold Blood. But I had another big star that I wanted to do, and that was um, Ray Fiennes. Mm. And as my partner, Mark Friedman, was going to go to CAA to discuss Rafe doing it, he got a phone call saying, don't even come in the door because we just looked at the reviews written by Rod Lurie, the writer-director, and the things he has said about our clients are so vicious. Like, I, I'm i not proud of it, I must say, and I really sincerely mean I'm not proud of it, but I had referred to Danny DeVito as a testicle with legs, or arms, actually. And because of that one sentence, Danny and uh, Rafe shared an agent, the same agent, and he said, persona non grata. Okay, now I'm with CAA. That was a long time ago. But that movie would never, ever get made now. But I had done this short film called Four Second Delay, which was a a short film about my hero, Bob Woodward, who was going on a radio talk show just like this and is challenged by a caller as to who is Deep Throat, which we didn't know back then. And the caller said he had hostages. We're going to start killing them until he revealed who Deep Throat was. So... Larry did that score for me. He came in with an idea. He did it for free. And the truth is, and and this is something that I suspect we've never actually talked about it, that Larry's agenda in doing a short film for free could only be one thing. There is no other option. And that is that he wants to forge a relationship for when I start making feature films. There's no upside for a guy of his caliber to be composing for a short film at all. And that short film went on to win every festival that it entered. It qualified for the Academy Award nomination. Then I got my first little film. It was called Deterrence. And I really like Larry's work, obviously, but I didn't even consider going to the big-name composers because of the loyalty and kindness that Larry showed me with Four Second Delay. Thank you. And... The score is just fantastic. It's just an amazing, amazing score. So much so that because it was not a union film, I was able to give Larry a credit at the end of the film. First name up would be Larry Groupe at the end of the movie. I was inspired by uh, Orson Welles, who did that for Greg Toland at the end of Citizen Kane. He said, you know what? The work here is so good that you deserve the most prominent credit. And I think when Larry first saw the film, his name is not up front with the other, uh, with uh, the director of photography or 
with the costume designer, and he, he must have looked at it and said, wait a second, what's go? wait a second, <laughs> big problem here. I'm not credited on the damn film. And then the movie ends, and boom, there it is, larger than life. And I just have tremendous respect for him and tremendous respect for his talent as well. So you have respect for his talent. You've had great experiences working with him. You right. appreciate his loyalty early on when you yes. made your first film, Deterrence, and you didn't want to work with anyone else. But not to put too fine a point on it, now, if you want to, you could. So I was wondering, when you consider that procedural political projects like The Contender mm-hmm. or Commander-in-Chief versus other films like Deterrence or Straw Dogs, you could very easily go with different composers to really right. target a certain style. So what is it you like so much about continuing to work with Larry to this day on so many diverse projects? I think he's one of the greatest composers in the world. And why wouldn't I use him? We have an amazing shorthand. And I can send Larry back to the drawing board 20 times and he'll do it. I'm not sure he would do it for other people. And I think he trusts me and I trust him. And I think that he has the best interest of the film and my best interests at heart. And he's my friend. There's nobody else that I'm really interested in working with. For me, because I'm very invested in the film and when I feel like I understand what Rod's vision is, I do... This is an odd way to put it, but I do whatever I want and canvas the score across based on my own dramatic decisions. And then, of course, I show this to Rod to get response, tweaks. He's, he's a, a great director in many ways. And one of the things that he does, I think most really good filmmakers do, he doesn't over-direct. He'll say a little more to the left, you know, a little more to the right. Uh, jump to the contender for a second. When that project began, he turned to me and said, okay, Larry, this is a movie about integrity. I'll see you later. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, frozen. That's not enough information, was my gut reaction. And then I sit with that for a few days, and I go, wait a minute, that that really allows me to contribute. I mean, I know right. what that word means. I'm going to write my musical reaction to that. You know, little finger crossed that Rod agrees with my response to it, and that usually is what happens. And I think why we often work together is that I do my homework. I really try. I've said this recently. I I kind of see myself as a filmmaker now who is the one that supplies the musical component. But when I read a script or I look at a scene, I do it as best I can through the filter of a filmmaker because I can see where maybe there's a problem or I can see what the agenda really needs to be here. And then I take a beat and then I decide how will I approach this music? Because emerging composers are people that are kind of getting into this. They'll just immediately go to their musical reaction. You got to wait. You got to pick the right thing. And I think we just sense that or he gets that from me that I have a reason behind this. Doesn't mean he's not going to tell me no or all all the things that happen. And he will. Mm -hmm. And that's great. Every project starts from zero. There is no taking advantage of the previous project that's going to suddenly put us already 20% into the new project. This is not possible. They're very different. So we start from scratch every single time. If I get too specific with Larry, say more than integrity then I don't have the advantage of his brains. Yeah. You know, what, what, what's the point? You know, I, I'm not making a suit. You know, I'm not telling him how to tailor it. It is interesting. I was talking to some of the students the other day, and sometimes a composer has to be a tailor, where I say, here's what I very specifically need, but mostly I need a designer, someone who's going to design, not tailor. And there's a big, big difference. I did work with one other composer, and that was a very good experience, I must say, but it was for my third film, The Last Castle. 
And I really wanted to use Larry again. But Steven Spielberg, who produced that film and who gave me the opportunity to make that movie and who hired me to make that movie, he also really liked the score of The Contender, but he wanted me to now break into the big time. Robert Redford was in that film. It was James Gandolfini in that film. It was a $70 million budget. And he said, look, just for your career, you know, start working with the best. So he offered to put me in contact with John Williams. And if John couldn't do it, then Jerry Goldsmith, who is one of the most famous. Even you like Jerry Goldsmith. Of course right? I yeah, do. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. So, Absolutely. So my deal was if John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith were not going to do it, who are the two biggest names name names, you know, then I want to go with Larry. And John couldn't do it, and Jerry Goldsmith came in and looked at the film, and he told me that uh, he wanted to do it. And so I had to keep my word to the studio, and I like Jerry too, and I love Jerry's music. I mean, Jerry's, I think my favorite of his is Rudy. Mm. A very popular choice in this day. (laughs) Absolutely, but part of the reason why Rudy is such a success is that score. It's such an amazing, uplifting score. Jerry knew how to hit exactly the right notes to achieve the goal of the film. Patton was supposed to be this grandiose military figure, and he gave a grandiose score. The Omen, for which we won the Academy Award, is a very scary score. And Goldsmith was a very, very kind man. I'll tell you a quick story about Jerry. Um, We were working on sound and music on The Last Castle on 9-11 when the towers went down. On that day, we were in the studio. Jerry was at home working, and, you know, we were all spent. None of us could work. We, we went home early, in fact. But Jerry called me, and, he, and his voice is he's, he's in tears. And he says, I think I've got the score. And he wrote it that day. I went to his house a day or two later, and he played it for me. And it was just absolutely gorgeous score. It was like something that a Mozart would have done. I'm, I'm serious. Those guys, by the way, Mozart, Beethoven, would all be working in film today if they were alive, right? And three days later, he has assembled his orchestra, 70, 80 people, and plus the best trumpeteer in the world. I forgot his name, unfortunately. He was the guy from Born on the Fourth of July. And Larry, I'm correct in saying that composers, they get a fee, but you guys have to pay for everything, right? Yes. Right. That's, so That's how it's done nowadays. 70, yeah. 80 people. Mm-hmm. The studio itself, the studio, everything. It's probably $100,000 he's yes, spending, right? Yeah. Okay. So I get there, and he, the film is up, and he plays the score with it. And I'm, like, moved beyond imagination how amazing it is. September 11th, 2001 by Jerry Goldsmith. Listen to it. You'll understand what I mean. It's incredibly moving. And he came up to me after it was done and said, what do you think? And I said, Jerry, it's just incredible. And I mentioned I wish that sort of the, um, the crescendo hit on the flag but other than that, it's fantastic. Can we move it? He goes, no, you can't move it now. It's done. You know. And I, I said, okay, well, it's fantastic. And he cried. There was one tear came out of his eye. He was like he had let me down. And I took his shoulder. I said, Jerry, it's beautiful. I shouldn't have said anything. 
Had I known it couldn't be moved, I wouldn't have said a thing. It's perfect. Don't worry about it. A couple of days later, I get a phone call from him saying, could I meet him at 20th Century Fox where they had assembled all those um, uh, violinists and cellists and <laughs> flautists and he had assembled everybody again just to hit the crescendo, the swell as we call it, on the flag. He spent another $100,000. Just for a couple of bars. For yeah. Music. For the placement. Not even changing it. We could have shifted everything, but he wanted it to be perfect. It was just too important to him given the significance of when he wrote it. And now whenever there are concerts of Jerry Goldsmith music, they always end now with that particular score. That was very, very meaningful to me, and I got along great with him. But I needed, to, on the next film, and my next two television series, more importantly, to go to Larry. Jerry Goldsmith's agent said that Jerry was willing to do the title design to my first TV series, Line of Fire. And I said, I got Larry Groupe. The reason for that was twofold. One is, I really trusted Larry to come up with something fantastic. But there was no commercial reason to use Jerry or any other composer for a title design. No one ever knows who that is. And I knew that the monetary benefits, rewards from that could be enormous. That would help Larry much more than it would help Jerry. The same thing with our next show, Commander-in-Chief. So I wanted Larry's artistry, but I also wanted to return the loyalty to him. And his title design for Line of Fire ended up nominated for the Emmy. So I was right, and from every point of view. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. I'm speaking with filmmaker Rod Lurie and composer Larry Gruppe, who together have created films like Deterrence, The Contender, and Straw Dogs, and television series like Commander-in-Chief and Line of Fire. Larry, I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit more the workflow how it starts, what it's like to score a film, how long it takes, how involved the two of you are, how much back and forth there is? Mm -hmm. Well, let me start by, at least from my side, talking about the differences between a feature film and an episodic TV series. Time frame wise they're vastly different. In the feature film, uh, we have much more time to really ponder and think about what we want the design of the music to be. I often, almost every time actually, will start with a script when Rod has that put together, this could be literally three to five months before anything is even shot on film. I like that because it's a blank slate. I can respond to the location, the characters, whatever it is strikes me. I can begin to conjure up theme and color, and then I will send that to Rod for reaction. Eventually, I'll come to a point where I need to wait now for something to be shot to see if I'm right, because if, I, if I'm wrong, I'm going to toss it. If I'm right, then great. We're already three steps in. So that's part of our process I do each time, uh, starting from script if possible. In the TV world, it's a producer's medium. Uh, even though Rod has been, he's the showrunner and he's the executive producer of the show, so that's critically important, but he's also deeply into the making of the show. So he's writing most of the scripts, he's directing most of the episode, he's ridiculously busy. So we don't actually 
see each other a tremendous amount. So there's a big trust factor going on as I'm trying to get the weekly music out. I'll give you a very brief description of at least my experience in Episodic TV. I'll go in on a Monday morning to the editorial suite and I'll sit with the editor. There's usually maybe two or so producers from the show that are there and myself and a music editor who takes notes. We look at that particular moment and cut. I kind of walk away with a set of marching orders on where I'm going to put my music. I go home. I write it in the computer so I can do it quickly and represent it. I come back 36 hours later on Wednesday morning, and I put that into the editorial so we can judge that. A couple things happen. Two different producers are there that I've never met that weren't there the other day. Um, <laughs> the Nothing fits because the cut of the show has changed a lot, but it's still enough to react to what the music at least was trying to do. So then I go home with the new cut, those new notes, and then I redo everything. I come back in on Friday, and I put that into the editorial. Nothing fits because they've changed the cut of the show so drastically. And where they come from, I don't know, but here's two other producers. So <laughs> I'm getting all kinds of notes from all kinds of people, committee style, unless the showrunner or anybody that's up high on the list kind of walks in and gives us 30 seconds of their time, which is the great leveler. Otherwise, I will then take that home Friday night accommodate the new cut and the notes, and then I don't go back because uh, on Sunday morning, I now take that version of the show, and I'm in our case in Commander, I go to Paramount and I record it with the orchestra. It's mixed immediately, rushed over by the music editor to the dub stage over in Burbank where it's mixed in, so it's like it says in TV Guide, it's on the air at 9 p.m. Right. The following morning, Monday, I'm back in on the next episode, and it can go like that for 20 weeks. So it's an amazing experience. And what I loved about that kind of writing is that you learn to really trust your dramatic instincts in what you're doing. I think Rod told me one day, TV is a crazy medium. It's like you're never done. It's just simply taken away from you. You know, so I actually liked the pressure of it. And I'm very happy with what the music is. I don't feel like I didn't give it enough attention. It's just that it's very high pressure. Yeah, and he's really good at it. And a lot of people are not. But what he's really good at is not just working quickly and fixing and altering things. In film also, he'll write uh, music to a scene and then we change a scene and it's got to be redone. And sometimes his music editor will do it. It's called, we call it conforming. It happens so frequently that there is a word to actually describe it. But we did a TV series called Commander-in-Chief. Gina Davis is the first woman president. It was the number one show on TV when it opened and they fired me from it and they replaced me with Stephen Bochco, who was not green as I was and was this super-duper showrunner, the number one showrunner maybe of all time in terms of dramas, and they brought him on to replace me. He completely tanked the show, by the way, and it got canceled. But he fired everybody when I left. Everybody lost their jobs. All the writers, costumes, script supervisors, everybody went except for Larry. And I called up Bochco, and I said, look, I'm going to tell you, just keep the composer. He knows what he's doing. He'll make your life easy. He wanted to fire Larry just because he was one of my people, and, you know, that's what you do. You don't keep anyone that was loyal to the last guy. But he kept him, and I think he was very happy that he kept him right up until the show was canceled. <laughs> <laughs> These days considering especially the ability to stream and, of course, binge television. For two of you who are both so seasoned in both media, is television kind of becoming the new giant film? Does it affect things that way as a composer and as a director and a writer? 
Well, I'm sure we have two personal answers to that. I do think TV is, especially dramatic broadcast cable television shows, is it's an amazing time. The writing is absolutely tremendous. The actors from film can't get in the door fast enough to get on a, a quality TV show. The music is very wide open for new interpretations. It's the new indie format. So I find the music in lots of television shows to be very adventuresome and really cool. And in many cases, uh, I would say 85% of the new drama TV shows are better than probably 85% of the movies coming out almost. If It's, a, it's right. kind of an unfair comparison, but it's true. I just think that the creative power behind TV even though it's very economic now, and you know the seasons are shorter, nine, maybe 11 episodes, are just wonderfully put together. And the economy is very, very tight. So things have very much changed to the composer and locations. I'm sure Rock can speak more onto those things as well. But it's a fantastic outlet to, well, to be in. You know, the season of Breaking Bad, the season of Mad Men, the season of The Sopranos, these are masterpieces. I happen to think that music carries more weight in film that the most memorable scores, scores, not title designs, scores still come from the movies. Look, I have absolutely no doubt that The Contender, which was the movie that launched my career, that made me, you know, after I did The Contender, I could do anything that I wanted. It was very successful. Steven Spielberg bought it after his mother wanted to see it at her house. He bought the movie. First time I ever did anything like that. He bought it for DreamWorks. I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that if Larry doesn't score the final speech by Jeff Bridges in that movie, that the movie doesn't get sold. It was so emblematic of the movie and such a significant score that it made the whole movie, it made the whole ending of the movie. I'm certain that that is what sold the movie. Although I didn't give Larry a dime from the, uh, from the sale. <laughs> Although I didn't get a dime from the sale either. So I actually went to high school, same high school a year behind Barack Obama, but I didn't know him at all from Punahou in Hawaii. But I first met him and talked to him at Ari Emanuel's house in 2007 or 2008 when he was just beginning to run. And when he met me, he shook my hand and he said to me, you know, Jeff Bridges is the best movie president ever. And I said to him, you got my vote. <laughs> and then he said to me, that speech, man, at the end, I should hire you to be my speechwriter. And I said to him, no, sir. You need to hire Larry Groupe to put music behind your speeches. You're going to get yourself elected. In fact, any of these people who put Larry's music behind their speeches is going to get elected. Because what is the job of a composer, or one of the jobs of a composer? It is to create the emotional energy that the director is looking for that will best serve the film. And the triumph that we needed and the positive energy that we needed was enhanced by Larry's music. Now, Jeff Bridges' performance there was amazing. Uh, amazing. And he got nominated for the Academy Award. But there's no doubt that the music is what really sold that scene.
director and screenwriter Rod Lurie, and composer Larry Gruppe. Their decades-long collaboration has produced films like Nothing But The Truth, Deterrence, and The Contender. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. How do you decide? How do you, Larry, as a composer, how do you, Rod, as a screenwriter, as a director, how do you decide where in the cut of a film the music must go and where it must not go? Well, that's a Larry question. Where music is not is equally as important as where music is. I learned that early on, and I value those gaps because the next entrance can have that much more power. So if a score is wall-to-wall, there are times where that works, like in Dunkirk, and I love the movie. Everything about that movie, including Hans's score, is great. It is never-ending. That was a design need, that there was always this undercurrent there no matter what was right. happening. He's actually using uh, the technique of a shepherd's tone. The shepherd's so, tone, yes. yeah. So, And that's how you can sustain something that long in the movie Stroga. What is a shepherd's tone? It's a, a visual description of a shepherd's tone is you look at a barbershop pole with the stripes, right. you know that it's not like a pole that never ends. It's just the eye is tricked into thinking that the stripes are ascending at all times. Right. And so you can actually write that musically. There's a way to do that where it feels like, oh, the line is continually going up. The pitch and is ascending constantly, constantly. And, up. and it's, yeah. um, mm. it's not hard to do, but it's a phenomenon that you can do. So anyway, that's very much the core of Dunkirk's score is built on that device. I was going to transition over to Straw Dogs. I have an opening title that absolutely is unabashedly sets us up for the end of the movie at the beginning of the movie emotionally. I'm not giving anything away. I'm just preparing everybody. I'm lining everybody up for get ready for a hell of a ride. And then I use that in just levels, shades of gray perhaps, throughout the first two-thirds of the film, constantly pointing towards the end with this sense of unrest. And then, of course, it finally gets let out of the gate at the right time and goes that way. I understand that you had kind of a different directive and that you were asked initially to have a more on-the-nose sort of jangly rural pastiche oh, for the music at the beginning well, of Straw Dogs. this goes back to when I read the script for the first time, and I, I knew that if I had done something that was more from the South, like uh, a Zydeco or a Cajun Southern rock score, the studio would be very happy, and it, and it would in essence work. But I also knew emotionally... That'll get us to first base, but we'll never get off of first base. It's not going to have the pliability and the stretch and the reach that I want to use for the character development the story arc. It was, in essence, my idea to do what I describe as a gothic and film noir score, which I only I keep these things very privately between myself and Rod to see what he thinks about that. And uh, he embraced the idea of it, but we also had to, you know, let's hope <laughs> that this will go. And when we first showcased some of this to the studio, they were not... They were not happy with the approach. This is not an art film. You know, how about some guitars? I mean, where's, you know, this is a modern day thriller. And in the pecking order in Hollywood, the composer is pretty much a little lower than parking lot attendant. So I need, <laughs> I need, so I needed the director to champion that. And Rod was, of course, very, he was behind the concept of what the score was. So he basically said, you know, give us a couple weeks, see how it pans out over more of the film. And they started to slowly turn and embrace this idea. And so we got to do exactly that. Uh, funny outcome is they got to like it so much that during test screenings and things that we do go near the end, they wanted to actually add more and more score to the film, uh, right. almost to the point that Rod says, that's like yeah, that, more than that's, I want to use. That's not uncommon. That yeah. About Straw Dogs, which was a remake of the 1971 Sam Peckinpah film, 
When I was writing the screenplay, I had Bernard Herrmann in mind. You know, I always thought that over the first shots, I want to hear bomb, 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 bomb. So we were very like-minded on it. But there was another reason that I shut down from the studio immediately. And the studio was run by a very sort of aggressive studio head, a guy who a lot of people think was the model for Tom Cruise in Tropic <laughs> Thunder. Very, very involved, hands-on in everything. Sometimes, uh, to the benefit of the film, he's very good at his job. But I didn't want to have a Southern approach, and here is why, Aaron. This movie, I didn't want to make it red state versus blue state. We were already risking that with the movie. I wanted it to be about people who were raised with violence and people who were not raised with violence. That's what I wanted to approach. That's how you're created, not based on where you live, not based on the fact that you're a conservative or that you're a liberal. And I feared that if we had Southern music, I was saying this is about the Southern, Confederate, Trump-like states versus the more liberal blue states. I didn't want that. And that would be reinforced if I put in a lot of Southern music. So that was very deliberate on my part. There was just no way that that was going to go into the movie. Now, as for filling in more music, Larry and I are working on a film right now. It's called The Outpost. It's based on the book by Jake Tapper, and it's about the bloodiest and most heroic battle from the American point of view of the Afghanistan war. It's about the Battle of Kamdesh. And we've taken a much different approach than we really ever have on the music. It's very soundscapey, is the way that I like to describe it, with melody drawn into it. So it's like Johan Johansson, but with melody. And um, what Larry and I do tend to do is we tend to overscore the film, and then I, in the editing room, will start taking things out, okay? And in the case of this film, you know, I think that the sounds of the war are their own form of music. And so I've taken out a lot, you know? I'd say I've taken out about... 40, 50%. Well, we tested the film the other night, and um, I, I don't think I'm at liberty to discuss the exact results of the test, but they were extremely positive, meaning that you touch as little as possible once you have that sort of reaction. But yesterday, I got a, a phone call from the head of music over there, and by the way, who went to Indiana University, and she said... No, we need more music. We need more of it. And I, and I said, now this is a common studio reaction, you know. But it's a little bit different here because what I thought I was going to get from her is we need more orchestra. We need it more traditional. They love what Larry has done. And they simply want more. Now, I will decide eventually what we're going to do there because I think that we have more or less made the right decisions. Maybe we'll put in a little bit more score, but I think that sometimes there is a knee-jerk reaction that score will always help. I'm not sure, and I'm sure Larry will agree, that you don't want to be the reason a scene doesn't work, right? <laughs> yeah. You know? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we'll see where all of that falls out, but so far, so good. It's like really effective right now. I wonder if sometimes the studio, especially given the subject matter, the yeah. films like Straw Dogs right. or a, a gripping war film or a, any sort of thriller, if 
omnipresent music in a way kind of holds our hand and tells us it's going to be okay through some of these more intense dramatic moments. Yeah, well, that certainly is true. And, you know, I wouldn't mind making a movie where, you know, I think that this executive at Millennium is extremely good at her job. And I think that her instincts are probably correct. I'm not saying that, that they're in any way wrong. I just said that I now want to evaluate it. But, you know, they know a good thing when they see it and think that it can be even more effective. But I wouldn't mind doing a movie where every single intro of the movie has got music in it. Um, you know, Spike Lee does that, right? Terrence Blanchard mm-hmm. is everywhere in his movies. And if not Terrence Blanchard, then there's a song score going on. I really dig that. It depends on the film and, and what I want to accomplish. We could have had score in every inch of Straw Dogs, theoretically. And sometimes I'm upset with myself that we didn't, but it's probably our most score-heavy yeah, without movie. as far as minute count, it certainly is in percentage to the running time of the film, mainly because of the entire last act is so action oriented. It needs to be there. But I think if I the way I heard your previous question, I mean, I've gone to movies where the score is being overused, where they just feel everything has to be struck and hit. And even if the score is written ultra dynamically, where it's really delivering emotional impact, you desense as highs to it if it's not done either with hills and valleys or with gaps, because it just becomes less and less effective. Uh, this is not to diss anything about uh, the score in like the movie 300, but it just sounds like a trailer. It walks like a trailer. It is a trailer. I like writing trailers because they're melodic and they're huge. It goes back to my liking, yes, I think. I like doing those big sound things. But I also found that in a movie like that, it starts to get flatter and flatter, and it's not giving me the jolt that it did in the first five minutes. It just can't get it back up. So, yeah, it's a judicious thing. Everybody's different, and music is highly, highly subjective to every person. That's one of the things as a film composer – I think about that going, well, I know how this makes me feel, and I'm glad Rod liked what I just did. But I do think about I'm trying to send a message to as many people as I can. So I try to incorporate that in what I do so I just don't go off into left field, which I I can do. By the way, there's no bigger pain in the ass than presenting two things to everybody in the studio in film or television than casting and music. Because this is an area where everybody is an expert. Of course. Everybody is an expert. They know what they like, mm-hmm. right? And it's so subjective. And I have never had any movie, any TV show, any anything, nor have any of my peers where the music was universally liked by everybody. It's like everyone it's has an, It's just such a pain. They go, I don't like it, you know, and I don't like it for this reason or that reason. And like right now, Larry and I wrote a song for this movie. And we are trying to find some big star, uh, some great star to sing the song. And we've got many people that have volunteered to do it or have agreed to do it, I should say. And nobody can agree on who it should be. Ultimately, I think I'll make that decision. But I'm being hit from all corners about who likes what, who doesn't like what. It changes based on somebody's ethnicity or somebody's age or somebody's gender or so many different reasons and it, it's just, it's incredible pain. Like, you know, if we're being honest, every time I start a movie and I say, I want Larry Coupe to be the composer, a lot of people say, that's great. And some people say, no way. But it's not because it's Larry. It's because they want their own guy. Mm-hmm. They want this dude or they want that dude. Every single time, I know it's going to be a fight no matter what, unless it, I was bringing in Hans Zimmer or something like that where there's a knee-jerk positive reaction. It's never negative, ever, 
but it's absolutely always a fight, every time. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guests today are filmmaker Rod Lurie and composer Larry Gruppe, whose recent projects include motion pictures like the remake of Sam Peckinpah's thriller Straw Dogs and the upcoming film The Outpost. Now, Larry, I hope you won't find it at all disrespectful for me to ask this question of a film composer, because I'm wondering if you can think of some examples of the best instances in some films you admire when music was absent. Hmm, that's a good one. There are times where I will design a cue for a particular scene that's going to deliver us into silence or into some change of pace or or something where the absence of music is really important. And I can design the cards to fall in that favor. It's really hard for me to pick out a scene in particular. I can throw a couple of examples at you. Sure. Dog Day Afternoon has no score at all. And... It shouldn't have had a score because if what you are trying to invoke is pure reality, scores don't exist in real life. And so the minute you have a score, you're taking yourself a little bit out of reality. And Dog Day Afternoon was meant to have a documentary style. It even begins as a documentary footage. And then Al Pacino walks into the documentary of it all and you're in the movie. Right? Same thing with another City Lament film called Prince of the City. There are some movies that don't have score, and usually that is very, very effective. And in our battle sequences in The Outpost, that's an example where we took music out. Larry wrote some score for a couple of the battle sequences, and he and I both agreed that, again, you know what, we need to have the sounds of the mortars and the sound of the explosions and the the difference between the sound of an AK-47 and the sound of an M4, the enemy weapon and the American weapon, this is the music that we need. And we can even sound design it to be a score, right? But to have that action-oriented theme, by the way, that's never really a creative moment for composers doing action. When Jerry Goldsmith did The Last Castle, he said, I forgot what the gentleman's name is, but, you know, Joe Blow is going to do the action stuff and I'm going to do the rest of it. I said, wait, hold on, what are you talking about? Someone else is going to compose? He goes, Rod, it's action. Don't worry about it. It's about as rote as it comes. And sometimes, John Williams did beautifully in the action scenes in Star Wars, for example. And some of the James Bond music, John Barry did great work with the action sequences. But very rare is it that you'll spend too much time, right, Larry? And yes. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, 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 it's narrow. It's just always by default becomes a narrow creative thing. It's a requirement, but it's narrow. What we want is the emotional stuff, and where is the theme going to play, and what are we doing, uh, how are we drawing out the characters now? I, I think that the outpost is... Um, I think that Larry could be an Oscar nominee for what he's done thus far in the outpost. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a really significant film, and I think that there is an originality to the music that the Academy... The Academy with scores, I know I'm in the Academy. We're often criticized for going most common denominator. But somehow with the scores, 
I don't know that the best score wins or the most original score wins, but they're often nominated. Their originality is rewarded. I do think, for the most part, when I go back over time on some, yeah, not all the ones that I think really should win. I'm sometimes shocked about what actually wins, but thank goodness it's in you know the five or six of the nominate. The nomination actually is harder. Winning is just all chicken bones and and final luck, but getting to the nomination level is the ticket. That's really the biggest challenge. I was wondering about the Academy when it comes to film scores. Do you evaluate the film score separately from the movie? Is that even possible? Is that how people decide? That's true about every category, right? I mean, the Academy rules are that composers will nominate composers, which is why we tend to get really original stuff nominated. Like um, when I think Johan Johansson was probably nominated for Sicario. I don't remember. But that that, that was really original. Didn't win. Because then the whole academy, who are not all music experts, now they're voting on the nominees, and often they will go, you know, a score that's quite beautiful, but not necessarily the most original. I'll tell you, though, that The Outpost, it is the most important, most emotional, most hellish, awful, wonderful experience that I have ever had. There's nothing in my life that has ever been as important as this movie. Nothing. I don't even know if, other than the raising of my kids, nothing has been more important to me. I swore that this would be something incredibly special and and. As I was prepping this film over the summer, uh, my son died. Hunter, he was 27 years old. And I, uh, I went to Michigan where he had uh, cardiac arrest from a blood clot that he had gotten. And uh, I'm in the hospital and he's hooked up to a thousand machines I I arrived um, before he died, and I held his hand and watched him die, literally watched the last movement of his chest. And my daughter, Paige, she says to me, I know you're thinking that you can't finish this movie now, which is exactly what I was thinking. How am I supposed to get back on a plane and go to Bulgaria? while my son is about to be cremated. And she said to me, there are so many people that are counting on you for work, and the subject matter of this film, it's so important to you. And I was reminded that Hunter, who was 27, um, he was the same age as these guys who died in this battle. And I knew that I had to go back and make a really great film. And I remember talking to Larry about this, and I told him what I told everybody else. Everyone get out of my way, you know. I'm going to make this movie. We're going to make it right. We're going to make it great. We're going to honor these guys, and we're going to make a movie about loss and what it means when these guys, these soldiers, these Americans, that their families feel loss, and was it loss for a reason? And it's about the brotherhood of these guys.
And so we have taken an untraditional approach in this movie with the music and and even with the shooting of this film, the style of this movie, it's very unique. And, you know, the movie is dedicated to my son. And as we speak right now, the movie still has to go through post-production. And his name will only remain on it if it's worthy of him. And so everything about this movie has to be at the highest level. And I will fight for it with a zeal and an approach that is unprecedented in my life. Because I don't even know if this movie wasn't here to work on. I honestly don't know if I'd even be alive. So, you know, uh, the music is part of that. And I'll be damned if we're going to take an approach that is anything other than, than, than creative and new and original. And I have to say that this studio has been behind me 110%. They have not tried to stop my quest at all. The company, generally speaking, makes very commercial films. And I think this film will be very commercial, but they've had to have a leap of faith and they have joined in the journey with me and so has Larry. Rod Lurie, Larry Grippe, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thank you, man. Director and screenwriter Rod Lurie and composer... Larry Gruppe. Their decades of working together have produced films like Deterrence, The Contender, and Nothing But the Truth, and television series like Commander-in-Chief and Line of Fire. Larry Gruppe is also visiting professor of music scoring for visual media at the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music, and recently Rod Lurie joined Larry Gruppe again to discuss the director-composer relationship in a workshop hosted by the IU Media School's Cinema Academy. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812 812- Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of of Profiles.